Welcome to Indie Game Business, where you'll learn to navigate the industry with ease. This show is produced by the Powell Group, the leading business consulting firm in the gaming industry. Visit us online at IndieGame.Business to learn about our online digital events. We have some amazing sessions with people in the gaming industry, and you can participate for free and purchase inexpensive passes to our industry-leading business-to-business system. Now, here we go, Indie Game Business. What's up, everybody? My name is Indy, and the uh, gentleman right next to me, that's Mr. Jay Powell from Powell Group Consulting. And, well, this is Indie Game Business, and today we've got my good friend Damon Sly, the founder of Mad Otter Studios with the amazing MMO, the very first cross-platform MMO for mobile, Villagers and Heroes. Wait, wait, wait a minute. You, you, you forgot the whole slew of, of, of Damon's wonderful background background okay uh, back in also is your age founded <laughs> yeah, exactly he also founded a tiny little company called dynamix and so it was this is one of those things that it's rare that i get to actually interview people who had an influence on me getting into the industry 20 some years ago uh but when Damon reached out and, and we were talking. I didn't I didn't realize this at first. Then I realized it's like, oh my God, you made A10 Tank Killer and the Red Baron games way back in the day that I played the hell out of. And so Damon, thank you for me before we even get started, because you are a part of the reason that I actually got into this industry in the first place. Hi guys. Uh that's very nice to hear. Yeah. That's, I, it almost feels like a former life. It was so so long ago, yeah, and I've exactly. done so much since then. But it was it's always fun to think back on those days. It was a it was a good time. You know, back in the days when we had things like boxes and physical distribution and, and, and no and, internet. You yeah, know, exactly. <laughs> no cell phones. So, this is, we're going to start where we always do. This is going to be a longer segment than normal, but. Tell us how you originally got into the industry and then walk us through the stuff that you've done for the last 20 or 30 years. Okay. Well, I, I got, I got interested in computers when I was uh, in junior high and really more in high school, there was a, a, a physics lab and it had a Commodore pet, which had 8k on it. And so I started writing games for me and my friends. Um, but you know, People don't realize it, but back then computers were really scarce and rare, and microcomputers were even more scarce. This is even before, or right about the time the Apple II appeared. Um, it was really early. And so I sort of got the bug early on um, when only, you know, the weird people were into computers like me. Uh, so um, I, I decided I had to buy an Apple II. And that's what I did. And my parents were a little upset because they wanted me to save all my money for college, you know, but I just had to have an Apple II. And so I started writing uh, games for it um, and graphics uh, programs. And um, basically I ended up writing Stellar 7. Just, I just had to write a, a game, you know? And so I, I created Stellar 7 um, and 
started seeking publishers and that's sort of where it first started for me personally. Oh, looks like a, yeah. Jay had to take off there for a That's second. okay. That is a, uh, that, how long ago was that anyways? Well, that would have been in, it, it would have started in like 1980, uh, right after I graduated from high school. Uh-huh. I mean, at my high school graduation, while they were all walking the ceremony, I was walking and reading my book on assembly language, you know, uh-huh. <laughs> trying to Man, learn. I remember my, my, we had a Commodore 64 <laughs> and, um, my dad was all about learning the assembly language. And I'm like, what is that? I remember being in, I guess I was in eighth grade or something. And that was like, it was in the good old days where you get the magazines and you type out all the code. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's right. Like a, a little, the very first one that I did, it was like a, a waiter holding a, a platter and then you would bounce a turkey and slide the waiter back and forth across the screen. Oh yeah. I remember yeah. that game. Yeah. yeah. What was back in that day before I know we have really super important questions, but what was your favorite game back then? Back then? Well, you mean computer game or like video game? Yeah. Computer game. Computer game, man. I'm trying to think. What did I like a lot? lot? Uh, Early, early on the best game on the Apple was really called Apple Galaxian, which was Uh -uh. like, like Galaga basically. And it was really, really a well done game. I think Broderbund published it. Um, and uh, there weren't a lot of games back then. Um, Nazar Gabelli used to make little arcade games that were pretty cool, you know? Sort of basically, people were copying arcade games uh, originally. And then some people started doing some more interesting stuff. There was a game I always really was interested in, it was called Temple of Shy. It was sort of an adventure game, but it sort of went halfway through and then it just ended. <laughs> so. That was a weird. I think they ran out of development time or memory or something. Yeah, so I, I, my, my favorite was Telenguard on the Commodore sixty four. Oh, okay. okay. Twenty minutes to load on a cassette. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Cassettes. Yeah. Sure. Now you can play it in a browser online. You click it, and it's like you play it for two minutes, and you die. Then you have to start over. Like the Fitbit. You know, that's the um, the the interesting thing is. Tell us how, so you started looking for a publisher for that first game. How has that process, how was that process back then? Let's just start there. So it was, you just uh, put discs into a, a, a envelope and you mail them off to publishers with a letter and say, hey, I want to be, I want to, I want to publish. Um, what ended up happening was I met a gentleman here in Eugene by the, by the name of Jeff Tanell, and he had a computer store and he talked me into publishing with him instead. He was a real entrepreneurial person. And so he said, well, let me publish your game. I'll do a better job, you know? And so he and I teamed up and um, we ended up forming dynamics uh-huh. out of the whole deal. And so uh, we got started with dynamics um, and, uh, but the good news was because we had sent Stiller 7 out, we got contacts with publishers, including Electronic Arts. So right. we had a, a contact with EA uh, based on that initial submission. So and you Stiller, grew up in Eugene, too? You're in the same town? Yeah. When you, yeah, yeah you, you went to Eugene High School? Well, South Eugene. There's there's uh, South Eugene, North Eugene, Churchill, and Sheldon. Uh-huh. Oh, Wow. So how did uh, that process go with dynamics? Then it just kind of blew up. And then like, what was the, what was the, um, 
most amount of employees and like when when was like when were you riding high with dynamics when when was the like most exciting time for you it's kind of weird i mean it's kind of like it just slowly gets better and changes you know mm -hmm. um so you never really notice you, you you never feel like oh we've arrived you know this is great you're just slowly and every time i mean things are getting better but then you're facing newer and bigger challenges you know Right. I mean, the hard times, of course, is when you're you, it's it's Friday and you're putting checks out for payroll and, you know, there's no money in the bank. And you're like, well, if we give them the checks at five o'clock, they won't be able to get to the bank in time and we'll be able to come up with them. We can maybe come up with the money before Monday. <laughs> so. Oh, so in other sneaky. words, that's look. sneaky. <laughs> that's shady. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not. If the money's there on Monday, it's OK. Right. 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 Day is if it's not there on Monday, and then you get like, your paycheck at five oh five. Yeah, that's not a luxury right. that we have anymore. Everybody's getting direct deposits and yeah. everything else. We kind of have to make sure that it's everything is still there. Yeah, but it was tough dealing with those publishers. I mean, they basically were squeezing all the, you know, all the money out of the developers. That's they were good at that and right. keeping all the money for themselves. And um, I mean, they they gave you royalties and advances and stuff like that. So. I can't complain, but there was, wasn't really a viable bus business back then to be a developer. I mean, there just wasn't, you couldn't, you couldn't sustain yourself as a developer in the long run back then. I don't know what it's like now. I mean, a lot of these developers end up getting uh, um, acquired at some point if they have big hits, you know? Yeah, but th that's the problem. And I, the hit driven aspect of the industry hasn't changed that much it's just right. that there's so many more developers trying to make that next hit that's where everything comes in now and you know it's difficult sometimes for me to see some developers ranting and, and raving about specific contract points and yes you know what it's probably not fair i understand i get it completely but you know looking at it from the spectrum of you know the deals that you and i've done over the last 20 or some years there's been an evolution in the you know the terms on these things it used to be that the publishers would take you know 70 80 percent of everything and that was after they got their money back or quadrupled their investment in you or something completely crazy and it's gotten it, it's it's better now it's not you know there's still a lot of unscrupulous people out there but um all right and so sorry i missed something while i had to jump off for a call right there that's okay the, i want to pop this comment right here from barry on linkedin he says damon just wanted to say we love the ethics of mad otter games especially the uh not sending out your paycheck at 5 p.m on friday <laughs> and we believe in the community and the community will believe in you games should be based on this that's uh, right all right, well, that's just a wonderful a, thank point. Thank you, Barry. So tell us about the that's ethics nice. behind Matt Otter Games. Tell tell you about what now? The ethics behind. So so what, Barry, what is Barry referring to there? You know, what, oh, what are the ethics um, behind Matt Otter? I guess because we're community-focused uh, on our players, you know. Um, and I, 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 I really don't know how else you would do it. You know, if you're writing an MMO, a live game, because it really it's all about the players. I mean, the players bring the game to life. If you have an MMO and you don't have players, then the, the, it doesn't matter how great your world is and your game is because it's, it's dead, you know. And so we've just had this wonderful group of players playing the game. We, we, we've been fortunate. 
I don't really know how, why the stars align that way for us, but we don't have a lot of trolls and, um, you know, nasty people. Maybe it has a little bit to do with the design. We don't have PVP and hyper-competitive elements. We have some cooperative elements. There are still some challenges in the game, so it's not just all, you know, happy, happy. You know, there's some challenges, but, um, yeah. So community focus really is what, and they've, they've sustained us. Uh, about three years ago, uh, the game was hacked by, I don't know where the people were because they used an onion router. So, but not the game, the entire data center was hacked and we went down for a, a, a two weeks, um, February 14th and uh, happy Valentine's day. And uh, <laughs> the game was just hacked and just crushed. And so we were down for two weeks and the community helped us get through that rough time. We started live streaming every day and just saying, we're, we're not going any, anywhere. We're not going to go away, you know, because we were worried everybody would leave and go to a different MMO in the interim. But they watched us and they, they said, well, don't worry, we're not leaving either. And I almost get choked up thinking about that moment because they were there like, we're there for you. And I think that's the kind of virtuous relationship you can have with your community. And, you know, if you're just looking at it from a selfish point of view, there's even a benefit because they, they'll help you at some point, you know, like they helped us, you know, to get through that tough time. So we try to really take care of our, our players. There, there are some hardcore, hardcore committed players there. And I'll tell you, so I did a thing where I did a live stream back in the day of Villagers and Heroes with Damon and, um, then I played it for a little bit and then I didn't play it for about a year. And then we did another live stream with it, with Damon. And then when I got in the game, everyone, there's all these people run up to me, Indy. Oh, it's you. It's like, they remembered me. Yeah. So they they're remember like, you. They're playing it for, they just play it and play it and play it and play it. It's awesome. I'm sure if you went back in, they'd still remember you, you know, <laughs> and they'd start following around in the world and talking to you. <laughs> I, I I got back in, and because it was the it's it's also on mobile. It was the first cross-platform MMO play on mobile, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we were proud of that. Um, I, I've I've wanted it on mobile for years, and everyone I talked to thought it was impossible. But then I found a person who's actually a good friend of mine who said, "Well, I can I can port it." You know, and he's a real sharp guy. He's he's written game engines and stuff that are you know, on a level with unity and, and uh, unreal and stuff, real talented guy. He says, I can put it on, I can put it on mobile. Yeah. And it looks great too. And it plays really smooth. Oh, thank you. Thank you. So David, what are, you know, when you talk about how you treat the community and how you value the community for the folks out there that are, you know, just getting started. So what are some of the things that you all do for the community that you don't see a lot of these other a lot of these other MMOs doing? Well, I think number one is listening to the community. That's the biggest one, of course, is to listen. Um, and and then there's that whole idea of the the virtuous circle where you come up with an idea for a feature and you know you go through development and and you release it, but then the next part is you release it to the community and then they give you feedback and then you change what you're doing on the next cycle, you know? So you're iterating with feedback from the players. Um, that's a big one. Um, of course, another one is just being nice to the community and not 
doing cruel things. So I played an MMO a long time ago, and sometimes you felt like the developers were evil gods, you know, that would just arbitrarily crush, crush players, um, and not really even think about it. They didn't do it to be evil; they just did it because they weren't really considering it. So I think that that's important too. Um, and then just being engaged with the community, um, with the forums and we do like fan Friday where players submit content, you know, uh, uh, extra game content, not within the game or whatever, but, um, just really listening and, 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 and taking care of the community and the players and, and talking with them, I guess ha not having a wall there is really good. You know, not having a wall. Um, there's even weird things like we, you know, we have bug reports in the game where they can submit a bug report right within the game. I'm sure other games have features similar, but again, it's really just that communication, really. I think, I think, I think communication is a big part of it. So like that bug report thing, we'll find out about a bug within seconds, you know, of, of a, of a, a player experiencing it. Cause all the data goes right to us, you know, in an email or to a bug tracking system really closing the communication loop so you're not sort of distant from your players. And, and that is a lot of something that a lot of companies, you know, don't do. It's like they have, in some cases, almost an antagonistic, you know, stance against their developers, for, I mean, against their players for, for whatever reason. And so being able to, you know, have that good feedback loop and, and have that relationship is absolutely key. And like you said, even from a selfish standpoint, you know, it's going to pay off in the end because they're going to be loyal to you and they're going to help you out as well. Um, when you first got going with the game, how did you go about building that community to start with? Um, we didn't really focus on it other than, you know, we were just decent people with our players. It wasn't like, it sort of wasn't an explicit goal other than we wanted a, a nice place for players to come to, you know? There was a, there were some design goals in the game originally. Um, one of them was based on some quote that said something like, you get, you get big by, this was big, basically a general internet strategy. You get large by allowing the many and the small to gather on your lawn, right? So you want to have a nice place where people can come, you know? And so that was sort of a design goal of the game. But, you know, I, I really wasn't community focused before this because I was a, a game developer and we mostly made single player games, you know? And so wasn't really versed in the internet. So it's something that sort of evolved at Mad Otter. Uh, with us and our relationship with the community, but just coming to understand over time that it was really important. Um, but it kind of, and again, I did play this MMO and I remember the feeling of feeling like we were being ruled by evil gods at times and not ever wanting to instill that kind of a feeling in the player base. Cause who wants that? You know, you want to feel like it's fair. I mean, sometimes you do have to make changes to the design and stuff. That's going to affect a lot of people, you know, like a, a nerf or a play balance change but you have to do it for the good of the whole, you know, and not just do it because it makes your life easier. Um, I think another reason why a lot of companies have a hard time struggle with this is because it's just sort of a general internet strategy 
in business that if you have an internet product, you want to scale big and you want to keep your costs low. And one of those is to not supply any customer support, you know? And so, cause if you have a lot of customer support per, per user, then your costs go way up. And so they basically, if, if you see a lot of these internet businesses, you'll see that you can't ever reach anyone, you know, you can send, maybe they'll let you, they, like you can't call a phone number, you know, and you can't, then you can't even get a response to an email. And it's basically a business strategy where they basically put walls up in your way because it ruins their business model if you have to spend time talking with people. So I think there's some of the community thing is it's just sometimes it's hard work, you know, um, where you just have to put in the hard work to remain engaged even when you're tired and you just, wanna, you know, <laughs> watch TV or something. Um, you just don't want to do it that day. That's the yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you, you, you're like, okay, but we have to do this, you know, and so, but it, like I said, in the long run, it's, it's rewarding and it's worth it because it's just really neat to have a group of, I mean, there's nothing better as a game developer to be able to build your product and then have people enjoy it, you know, I mean, that's just special. I'm sure other, other uh, arts are the same, you know, like the theater or whatever, you know, where you, you have that kind of live feedback. It's just really, it's a special it's a special experience. So you, you got to realize the value of that. And sometimes there's some sacrifice that goes with that, you know, and really having a community manager that actually cares about what <laughs> is going on with you. What? Right. I'm yeah. sure that, that your community manager, hi Sarah, I bet yeah. you people like know her by name and she is friends with them on a, on a level, right? It's not about like, yeah. Oh, so-and-so is complaining about blah, 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 blah. Again, she, I'm sure she literally actually cares about people's problems. She does. Yeah, yeah. And she's a real person. I mean, she's not just sort of a, a persona. You know, some game, some companies have fake personas. She's like a real person. I mean, she'll, she's kind of like a family member to a lot of the players. And so sometimes she'll, she'll uh, push back. You know, she won't just be like, oh, thank you for your suggestion. We'll take them under advisement. That was a very kind thing. And then not do anything. She might <laughs> say, well, I don't think that makes sense, but people appreciate the honesty and not having that wall. You know? <laughs> right. Because I mean, at least you're being heard, you know, at least you're being heard. We see that in everything from small games all the way up to the AAA games. Like I'm a huge player. I suck at it, but I'm, I still play it all the time with the Total War games. And I know the main community manager, Grace, announced on Reddit that she was leaving. And it was just like, people were a little bit traumatized and they're like, but cause she is one of those community managers that does exactly that. She, you know, cares and she's very willing to listen and post whether things go good or things go bad. And so I don't think that is something that I think it's something that a lot of companies don't take seriously enough. You know, like you said, if you don't support those players, and this doesn't matter if it's a single player game or a multiplayer game or anything, any kind of game. If you don't have a good community manager about what you're doing that has as much empathy as this industry can allow every now and then, it does. It, it, it turns around and, and, you know, it will absolutely bite you on the ass. So y'all have been running this for, is, is Villagers 10 years old now? Uh, Yeah. I think 2011 we went live. So, 
Yeah. <laughs> what I never they... thought it would last this long. Somebody told me early on, a real smart person, she said, oh, MMOs have an average life of seven years. I'm like, what? That's a long time. Yeah, they're really. <laughs> when was that statistic? Because I think it's even lower now. The yeah. um, What has changed? I mean, what, what are some of the things that, I mean, because 10 years doesn't sound like a long time when you think about it in you know, the rest of the world. In our industry, I mean, that's a lifetime you know, five years in the industry and you're considered a veteran of the industry and, you know, to have one game going live as an indie studio for 10 years, what are some of the most significant changes that you've seen come through, you know, in that time? I guess for us, um, probably mobile. Mobile really helped us a lot. It brought in a, a lot of users. So you're always looking for that next thing that's going to help your, games survive and stay alive and so we would like one of our early things was we got on steam you know and for a while that sustained us it was like we got a lot of new users um but it really mobile was the thing that really made a big difference on the game um could be just mainly because it brought in uh many more players than we were having before you know we can we easily get a thousand new players a day through apple and and android whereas before that, with Steam, we were lucky to get 300 players a day off Steam back in its heyday. Now we maybe get 10 a day from Steam, you know. Um, and it's just you have a much bigger uh, distribution channel than, say, just organic search on the PC, you know, for the PC version of the game. But the nice thing is then once they get into the game through mobile, some of them will switch and start playing on PC because it's a better game experience. And conversely, people that start on PC decide, well, what if I'm in bed or I'm on the couch and I want to play, you know, well, maybe I can do some sort of light, lightweight activity. Um, so in terms of like the business side of it, mobile was probably the biggest uh, advantage or change that happened to the game. Um, I mean, there've been a lot of design changes in the game too, over time that, it, but it, but it's always evolving. It's never one big single thing, you know? We have a great question right here that I just kind of want to drop in and ask real quick. This is from Jim. I don't know how to say your last name. I'm sorry. It's a Burge. Uh, Facebook. What advice would you offer a new indie game developer who is self-publishing and getting some traction? 3,500 players in four weeks with only word of mouth for my early access game. Well, that's great. You're doing well already. Um, so I assume you're on Steam. Typically... Uh, the indie game scene is steam does really well for indie game developers. Um, uh, just because you'll, you'll sort of have a built-in distribution. Um, and it's harder to get attention if you're on mobile, but I would just say it actually, again, it comes back to community. You want to build up your community for your game, uh, through forums, through live streams. Um, uh, through releases, you want to just keep letting them know what's going on and use those as evangelists to uh, um, help build your community up over time because that's how you get momentum. Okay. Sorry. Um, no, he says Oculus App Lab, actually. Oculus okay. App Lab. Oh, great. Nice. Well, that's awesome. So I assume it's a it's a VR or an AR thing, a VR thing. 
I'm curious about it. Post that link. Oh, I don't know. Can you post links in the chat? Type out the game name in the chat because I'm curious <laughs> because I'm I'm looking for we just bought an Oculus Quest 2 and uh -huh. I'm looking for some games. I'm kind of disappointed that I have to have a the uh, a, a cord so I can play Oculus Rift games on it because I've already purchased some, but yeah, type that name into the chat and I want to check it out just for me. So yeah, I'd say really focus on building your community and taking care of them because they're the ones that are going to bring attention to your game over time. Um, it works better than, like, say, going out to trying to find publishers. It's it's easier to just build up your community and then the publishers come to you, you know. And plus, you release it without a publisher anyway, just on your own, and then and then you, you have a re revenue stream and then you just keep going. Right. So here's here's a good question. Um, why did you decide to go free to pay, free to play with villagers and heroes? I don't think there was a choice uh, when we released the game. Um, so if you have like a single player game, you know, and you release it on Steam, you can just say, "Hey, we're going to charge ten dollars," and I think that's a viable business model. But for an MMO, if you remember uh, all the MMOs that came out um, after World of Warcraft that had a subscription-based model and mm -hmm. failed <laughs> and absolutely failed, you can see why an MMO especially had to be free to play. I, I don't think there was any real alternative. Now I'm saying there are some alternatives, especially for single-player games. You could have a multiplayer game and you could release it on Steam, especially Steam really likes just, hey, I want to pay money and yeah. now I have the game. But for an MMO, even if it's an online game where people are going to play for years, and let's say you get ten dollars for the initial version, you know you're going to have a hard time sustaining yourself when someone's playing the game for you know five years. It's just not it's not going to be enough money. So I, I don't really think there was a choice. You have you have to be free to play. In most cases, again, I'm saying I do understand that there's this other case where you can do the other, but not for a game like Villagers and Heroes. I think you're just going to die. I mean, from a design point of view, it would be a lot easier to just do it like WoW and just say, oh, it's a subscription and you just pay a, a monthly fee because it, it makes the design way easier. The design's mm -hmm. way easier with that model. Free-to-play is difficult to design because um, you have to figure out what's going to be acceptable to your players because you can't just in, – in the West, you can't just sell pay to win, you know, because people will say, well, that's not fair. Now, in Asia, you can do that. And I've talked to a lot of Asian game players, and they're like, well, no, we, we want that. Mm -hmm. I'm busy. I've got stuff to do. I just want to spend some money and win, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so the publishers over the, and and I think money and status is a positive thing more in society there than it is in the West. In the West, we've sort of moved away from that, where it's like, well, no, it's about merit and quality, you know? So just because you've got money, you shouldn't be able to win. Well, in Asia, I think it's a little bit flipped where it's like um, they're trying to, to gain wealth, and so it's more acceptable. But so in the in the West, you have to be a lot more fair. But still, if you sell something that has no gameplay advantage, like if all you sell is cosmetics, that's a really hard, that's a really hard uh, way to make money. I'm not saying – so cosmetics are good, but it can't be your only thing. So we sell customization, convenience, and small advantages it has been our motto the whole way. So we think if it's a small advantage, it's still acceptable for players, you know, where it's like, well, you're like you're you can be five percent better if you spend a little bit a little bit of money, you know, and that's kind of that's about where I put that number, like five percent. So um, 
and then it's fairly cheap to buy whatever that thing is. But you don't have 50 things like that, right? Because then then that it really is pay to win. But so so like for instance, we have mounts in the game, and they go the premium mounts go a little bit faster than than the mounts that you can earn in game. But if you buy one mount, then you have that speed for all mounts in the future, basically is how it works. So, so it, in other words, it was a lot of work to do free to play, but it was worth, I don't, I think we'd be dead if we weren't free to play. I, I still, you just look at all the big games that tried to do free to play and cause they're hubris. They're, they're like, well, we can take on wow, you know, and do a subscription and they just die. <laughs> and they just die. <laughs> yeah. There was an article I saw this morning that shows that difference between the free-to-play side and, and where we are, and then in the West and in China. Apparently, a big, big Chinese uh, League of Legends player, a challenger. I don't play League. I'm sorry. Whatever, like the highest tier shit you can be is. He got arrested when they announced his name when he walked into a an internet cafe because apparently you know there's a lot of celebrity that goes along with it and so when one of these players shows up in what an internet cafe it's kind of like hey you know michael jordan is playing on my basketball our basketball court right yeah. now come see um unfortunately for this guy he was also a wanted criminal and <laughs> one of the other patrons in yeah. there was another big League of Legends, you know, player and fan. He was also an off-duty police officer. Oh. And so when he heard the name, he was like, what? Oh, my what? gosh. And he got up and took a picture of the guy, sent it into the police station to just confirm. And when they came back and went, oh, yeah, that's him. He's like, all right cuffed him and took him right out. And so but that's one of the things that they talked about was it is, you know, it's not only that pay to win, but there is a, a lot of celebrity that goes along with this. And it's like, I remember being at E3 shortly after Starcraft came out and we were working with a developer who had brought in two world ranked Starcraft players from Korea as consultants and we couldn't step three feet into West Hall before they got completely swarmed by Asian press because, and, and we're sitting there going, we had no idea who these people were before we, you know, brought them here. We just knew that they were really good at the game. Yeah. Uh, but it really is. And, and, and that's one of those things that I don't know that it's not like there aren't people here that would rather just pay some money and, and get a, a head start on some of these games. But it's, you know, society in general that you know, looks at it and it's like, oh, my God, that's evil. You didn't grind it up and you didn't do all that other kind of stuff. Um, yeah, well, it takes some of the skill out of it. Obviously, it yeah. takes some of the skill out of it. I mean, you just look at, like, say, the Olympics and, um, you know, there's controversies when, like, the swimsuits are give you too much of an advantage and only the first world countries have access to them. And you're like, well, that's not really in the spirit of competition, you know, in fair play. You know, if, if other people don't have access. And I think the, the problem with free to play is um, some of those games make it so you have to actually spend thousands of dollars to yes. be competitive. Yeah. And that's where it, it truly divides. You know, it's not about skill anymore. It's about there's some skill, but then there's also you got to spend a ton of money.
You have got to check out our Discord at discord.gg slash business. It's an amazing community of over 3,500 other industry experts. We've got developers, publishers, marketing and PR firms, investors, so, so many, so many. It's safe and supportive place to network and to talk to experts. You can learn more about the business of games or you can share what you know with others. We have exclusive workshops on perfecting your pitch deck, finding a publisher, and more. Remember, it's discord.gg slash indie game business. All right, so I want you to, I want your, I want your feedback on this. So one of the things that I tell a lot of indie studios, and obviously, given your time in the industry, you're not a normal indie studio, uh, but they'll come in and like, we're gonna make a free to play game for mobile, and I look at them and I'm like, no, do not. You're brand new. There's a lot that goes into free to play things, you know, that you don't understand yet, or that you're not gonna have enough money to cover the the user acquisition cost. And yeah. I actively dissuade, you know, new young indie studios from doing free to play games. So tell me why I'm wrong. Well, I, I, I actually think it's a good strategy to, to, to do, I guess, probably what you're recommending, which is if you're an indie game studio, one good model is to just build a really good game and sell it on Steam. Um, and just if it's a really good game and you sell it for, you know, $10 or whatever, you can make um you can make some money you know and and maybe if the game's good then you build up your reputation over time so i understand what you're saying like if you build a free-to-play game on for mobile and you release it probably no one's going to notice it you know um it's it the user acquisition costs are significant and just getting noticed i mean it's a big it's a big world out there um so and then and then also just pulling off free to play so that it's going to monetize it's it's hard you spend a lot of time on that aspect of it so i so i guess i'm saying i don't i don't think you're wrong i just think it was different for us um plus it's an mmo i mean i don't really know i think it i'm not saying there's no way you could make an mmo succeed where they just spend some money up front or something like they buy the game and then they buy some expansion packages. You could use that as a strategy, but you'd have to really think it through and know what you were doing. Plus, I don't think an indie game studio should make an MMO. It's too hard. <laughs> I, yeah, that's the other one. You know, I'll, I'll talk to students coming out of college yeah. and they're like, and I'm working on my MMO. And I'm like, no. Dude. It's really, really, really hard. And we we have some really talented and experienced people at Mount Otter. So. Um, and it was still way harder than we expected, obviously. Um, so but it, if, yeah, oh, go ahead. Well, we just had the background to, to be able to do it. And, but it was still a s incredibly hard struggle, you know, I mean, it wasn't until, you know, I don't know exactly when, but we, when we were finally making a living and earning money, you know, it took a long time. We were losing money for a long time. It was tough. So, all right. Let's stop it. And I'll say real quick, if you're on the Discord server or you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook or 
Twitch, LinkedIn, wherever you are. If you've got a question for Damon, pop it in chat. If you're on the Discord server, uh, just go to the podcast questions right above the room that you're in and, and pop it in there. You don't get a lot of opportunities on our podcast to talk to someone who's been doing this as long as Damon and who's been except, you know, exceptionally successful at it along the way. Yeah, we do got a question too in the Discord here. I can pop up. Uh, let me make this. Right, while quick. Indy's doing that, so you said you weren't profitable for a while. Give everybody an idea of how long it took the game to initially hit profitability. Well, it was sort of a slow climb, and I, I can't say when the exact uh, year was or whatever, but it, it, it's it's a weird thing. We were successful enough that we kept going, um, but not successful enough that we're like, okay, now we're there. So it was always a really hard struggle, but we get just enough positive feedback, you know, that we're like, well, let's keep doing this. So there's a strategy with startups in Silicon Valley, which is fast fail. We didn't have fast fail. <laughs> But we also didn't have fast succeed either. We had sort of in between malaise, you know. And so we didn't fall. I mean, it, basically on Silicon Valley, they, they want to test an idea really fast and see if it works. And if it doesn't, move on to the next idea. And the idea is that you can you can test 10 or 100 ideas in a short period of time, and one of them is going to hit. We, we didn't have that. We had slow, tiny growth for a long time. So... I mean, I would say we struggled. We, we basically struggled until we released on mobile is what I would say. So, oh, wow. like I was telling you that we, we came out on Steam and that helped us for a while. And we're like, oh, this is great. But then the numbers trail off. Like at first when you launch on Steam, you get a ton of new users. Um, like when we first launched on Steam, it was insane. We, it crashed our servers, you know, on day one because we had thousands of people every hour coming into the game. You know, if Steam turns on their funnel for your game, it's insane. They, they just they will just blast you. Um, and so we're like, oh, this is great. We've arrived on Steam. But then the numbers just plummet over time. And and you're not getting all these new users anymore. Um, so it really was mobile when and first we released on Android. And that was nice. And we're like, oh, this is getting this is feeling OK. You know, and then when we came out on Apple, on iOS, then uh, that's when we really felt like, hmm, this is a business, you know. This is a business. We can we can keep doing this and you know, and really sleep at night and not and have to feed worry ourselves. About, yeah, feed ourselves and 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 not have to worry about where you know payroll is going to come from next month. That's awesome. It's yeah, one of the tough parts about this industry and they talk in you know, bigger companies about how they'll give you the golden handcuffs. It's like when you want to leave the company, but they're paying you so much money that it, it's hard to do that. And I don't know what you would call those handcuffs in our industry. I, but, I would have taken golden handcuffs because we well, didn't yeah. have any there's no gold. <laughs> it's, it's not that we keep doing this because we're making so much money. Because yeah, that's gone that wasn't the that case. is not the reason. It, Maybe it was it the always, players that kept us going too. It is. I mean, that's it, that's the other thing. Because they they believe in you and what you're doing, so you you keep going. You're like, well, we know we've got a product because people are you know playing you know 
full time. That, that's what they do. They live, they live online and they play the game. So we know there's proof of the concept. So if we just keep going, eventually we're going to get there, you know? Right. I mean, a little engine that could. All right. So let, let me digress just a little bit. Alex being friends from uh, discord posts. I'm starting up a new two to three person development studio. What is the biggest pitfall small teams can avoid when starting up? So obviously you want to have good chemistry with your friends and know that you're going to have conflicts at some point on the business and possibly personal conflicts. So you want to really keep those relationships positive, keep your ego in check and always put what's best for the product as your top priority, as opposed to ego of who wins the arguments. That's huge. Like if you just focus on making the game the greatest thing possible and you're all committed to that, then your egos will kind of go away and, and it's going to help align all your, your values. There will still be conflicts where you guys disagree on what that is, what that is. But basically, if you just basically put the game first, that will really help. Um, the second thing is, uh, as you're designing the game, don't overscope it. Really focus on what is the core minimum set of features that's going to bring our game to life. Because the thing is, if you implement a feature and it's a bad feature, you can never not implement it. You can remove it, but you still wasted all the time. So you'll never get the time back. The time is gone forever. It's just gone. You've lost that time, which you could have been using to do something else. So really keep your minimum set of features into your product to get it live and get it launched and get it before people. And then when you iterate, you're iterating with information and knowledge on what the next feature would be. Because if you left that feature out, you can still add it later, right? But you can never not have done the feature and wasted the time. That's huge. I mean, that's basically just game development 101, and it takes years to really, really understand that. Don't overscope. Really focus on the features that matter that are core and essential. And then later on as you go, you'll start to see what is your product about because no matter how brilliant you are as a game designer, um, you're going to be surprised at what your game is really all about. Um, you may have a pretty good idea, but you're going to find things that, that you were wrong about that aren't that interesting and that fun for whatever reason. And you're going to find other things that you didn't expect that are going to be what the game is about. I, like I have a little story. I didn't work on tribes, but I do know the story of tribes, which is if anyone out there has played it, there's this thing in tribes. It's a sci-fi shooter game. One of the first where you, where you ski down the hills, that was a bug. They didn't mean to put that in and it became a core feature of the game. One of the most popular features of all, it was a bug and they almost removed it because it was a bug. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then they found that the players loved it. You could ski down the hills by holding the space bar down. And so that's just a weird example of sometimes you you stumble across things that are really cool. And then you build on them and say, oh, this is what our, this is it. We found the fun. That's where they talk about finding the fun. I guess maybe we could add that as the third thing, which is find the fun, which kind of goes along with the other two things. But you really want to find the fun and then go there. Um because that's that's the magic and that's the special sauce that it's really hard to put into a design document up front because you can have a really good idea but if it's not implemented right like say it takes too long for the user to get the feedback you might actually miss the fun you know so and that's where again getting the minimum set up quicker and then you can play test and iterate to find the fun you have more time left to play test 
So I guess that goes back to the second thing of overscoping, which is if you spend all your time implementing features, you don't have any time to play test and make the game fun. So make sure you have a lot of time built in your schedule to uh, play test the game after it's viable because you're, you really want to spend a lot of time making the game fun as opposed to just adding more and more and more features. And no feature creep. Yeah. No feature creep. <laughs> well, we're all guilty. I, I, I've done it a million times, but yeah. Right. I have a friend who's a developer and he's like, this game is going to be released. He did, he did crowdfunding. He's like, it's going to be released in October of next year. And <laughs> that was like four years ago. Yeah. And he's still working on it in feature. And I will admit the game looks amazing now. The game does yeah. look amazing. And there was also another game that I used to play and it had like, it was perfect. Everybody loved it. We would go on there when live streaming, we'd have like 60 people on the server, but he would keep adding features and features and features and taking stuff away to where the game just was not fun anymore. Yeah. And so it's like he ruined the game instead of like just kind of leaving and building on what it was. He's like, Oh, I want to make it different. And I'm like, but you took the fun out of it. So uh -huh. we've got a really, really long question. I can't post it up on the screen because it's too long. Okay. This is from Alp and Discord. We are currently doing hyper-casual games because we thought we didn't have experience. Now we can make games. That's okay and good. Now we're going to go forward to self-publishing. We worked with publishers, but I think we need to learn this as well for mobile games. But here comes a question. Implementing these SDKs are a pain in the butt. Sometimes I think there must be a person who only deals with SDK or these kinds of things. Is that a common thing? Hey, we're, we're not on the front page or, or doing something for IGDF right now. So we IGDAF. So, so we can say ass. Yeah, okay. You know, we are back to our usual vocabulary on this show. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm working hard on my vulgarity. So you can say that word. <laughs> okay. Anyway, all, right, David, <laughs> all right. Before I start dropping F-bombs. Yes. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. SDKs. They're paid in the, in the ass for... Um, the programmers and uh -huh. it's just one of those cruddy things that programmers are going to have to deal with on your team. Um, some of the SDKs are absolutely required and you don't have any choice. You have to implement them and other ones are optional. And then you just have to decide if it's worth it. You know, uh, we have, you know, I don't know how many SDKs embedded in our games, quite a few. And they're always a pain because the documentation is poor they have bugs. They'll they don't work exactly like they say they will, no. but you just you don't have a choice, you know, because some of them are required, and they say you have to put this in there, and then you can say, well, do we maybe on some of the optional ones you can say I'm not going to put it in, but then you're going to have some loss of of functionality and ability to, um, you know, manage your game because some because some of those SDKs obviously are, are valuable, but. There's just no way around it, and it's just pain that the programmers are going to have to go through. Um, so I don't really have any advice on how to do that. It's just so basically, his advice was suck it up, Buttercup. <laughs> yeah, that's right. that's right. One of my friends, he's a he's a great programmer, but he says sometimes it's just hard, and you just got to slog through it. It sucks, you know. You get what you get, and you don't throw a fit. Yeah, <laughs> sometimes that's what it is. It. That's some, it is what it that's is. What it yeah. is. Sometimes, I mean, it's not always fun. But so, that's, that's, if you basically, to be a programmer, should, that's yeah. Yeah, you should study SDKs and become SDK specialized, and then charge a bunch of money so other people don't have to do it. <laughs> you could try that. There are groups out. There are groups like FGL 
and if I can dig up the link, I will post it for you. But there are, I don't know, I guess the word I'm looking for here is aggregators. You're still going to be implementing SDKs, but they go out and gather a whole lot of SDKs and make it a little simpler. Now, keep in mind, I am not a programmer. I'm not an engineer. I may be completely off my rocker about how much easier it is. And if you've been doing programming for any given amount of time, you may be able to do it quicker on your own. But I do know that there are groups that there are companies out there that aggregate some of these SDKs and make it a little easier for you to implement them. Well, that's cool. Yeah, that's great. I mean, if there's some sort of um, off the shelf solution that turns a bunch of work into just offloading it, that's great. It's just hard to know if ahead of time if if they're going to deliver what they promise, yeah. you know, or if you're going to end up having to basically reintegrate everything on your own. Because uh, sometimes you need to understand it. Sometimes the programmers need to understand it if something goes wrong. Like if something goes wrong and it's an external group, then they're usually not going to be there to respond to you quickly. They're like, oh, well, we'll look at that in a few weeks, you know. Um, whereas if it's your programmer, you're like, okay, sorry, your Friday night's going to be spent fixing this, you know. And it's like, okay, let's go, you know, spend all weekend on it. At least you you can handle it yourself. So, But I'm not saying don't try that approach, but that's just sort of the downside of working with an external group like that. So, I mean, I know this is one of the things that, you know, engine makers like Unreal are trying to do, not Unreal and Unity, Unity with their plugins and, and Unreal with their blueprints, I believe is what they're called. What engine did you all use to create create your game, David? David? So it was originally an engine that came out of Dynamics um, and then... Uh, a group, including Jeff Tunnell, my former partner, had started a new game company called, or engine company called uh, Garage Games. And so they took that code base and they built uh, the Torque game engine out of it. Um, and that was the basis for their business. And it was sort of the original uh, indie game engine, which Unity has now surpassed. But basically, Torque was their first. Garage Games was their first with, with Torque. Um, and it really was the original business model. I mean, it, it really was the first, I think, of being an engine company for indie game developers. In other words, really cheap. So we're using Torque. And at this point, we're maybe one of the, probably the only company left in the world using Torque. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I asked. I was wondering if you were using Torque. Um, yeah. And it's a, it's a pretty good engine. I mean, it's not getting supported anymore, you know, but... Uh, one area where it's it's spectacular is the networking. Back when Oregon was the, one of the hubs for game development. Yeah. Yeah, it, it truly was. Um, but yeah, I, I remember talking. We used to work with uh, the guys at Gamebryo who were, I think at the time, almost the, the Unreal version to... Torque's Unity version because they had the contracts with a lot of the big AAA games. And then they got bought and sold and bought and sold and bought and sold. And I think what they had eventually turned into Lumberyard now that Amazon's okay. got, which is yeah. its own beast in its own it's a thing. Yeah. Uh, it is an engine. Um, do you... Are you complete... Because you've been running this on Torque for so long. Are you completely you know, beholden to it now? It's... it's 
if you want to keep running the game, I mean, do you are you going to need to continue to update the engine and do work, or is just moving it to something else a possibility at any point in time? If um, if we had basically a lot of new success in the game, which of course I'm always hoping for and trying to work towards, um, like lots of new players, and we we started to see a lot of growth, so there was a lot of extra revenue then I would consider porting it to a new engine. It's probably something like uh, at least a year of programmer time, maybe two. So you, you got to figure that it's worth all that, all that money. Right. Um, but then of course there's, there's alternatives to that, which is to either do a new game or a sequel on the new, on the new engine instead. Right. So we've thought about it a lot, but at this point it's never been worth the, cost benefit uh, ratio because it's, I mean, with our team size, we'd basically have to stop all features for like a year if we were going to do that. It's, it's, it's not a trivial port. It's basically a rewrite from the ground up. So the advantage of course, is that then you're on an engine that's actively supported and as new features come out, you just get them for free because they're developed by unity or unreal. Um, so we would, consider it but at this point it doesn't make sense it's easier for us to like let's say a new shader concept comes out like you know pbr uh, uh rendering and we it would be easier for us to just write a shader and add it to torque than it would to put a whole new engine in place pbr means something completely different where i am um, well i know i also know what that is <laughs> Yeah. Oh, well, here's another question. Let me get to it real quick. Physic, from... Physical, physically based rendering. It's that whole material system, but it's also a beer. Yes. <laughs> also a beer. All right. That's so right. this is from Nightwolf right here. It's, uh, let's see here. Boop. Um, we didn't want it to do that. We didn't want it to be a ticker. We want it to be. Uh, I got it. All right, so for fantasy games, do you prefer to have your own writer or game designer for custom lore, or do you have lore masters who research into the folklore, stories, myths, etc., of the different races and creatures? So they're saying, do we prefer to have a writer versus a lore master? Um, yes. I guess, in a way, those are kind of the same thing, right? Because a writer is still going to be a lore master, so I guess the question is, does the lore master have to be a good writer? Maybe is the question, right? Because either way, you're adding lore, right? So, so the writer is a lore master. Um, but the question is, is the lore master a writer? And and obviously, it's better. So so I, anyway, that's getting too academic. What I would say is, my <laughs> wife, who who joined the game development team many years ago, she's a great writer. Like that was her thing was she was a writer and she she's written some screenplays and and she basically what happened was she wondered what this thing was that I was doing. So she started playing the game just to check it out, you know, and then she got addicted. <laughs> <laughs> Evil game designer laugh. <laughs> That's your goal, right? You want to you want to get people and you're like, whoa, because she wasn't a gamer, right? She wasn't a gamer. And she always made fun of games and she was just like, she was all about film and movies and books, you know, more superior kind of art forms. Um, she was a and, little persnickety back in the day is what you're saying then. Huh? Uh, she still is, but <laughs> she saw the light. She realized how cool games were too. And so then she uh -huh. got, 
And she said, well, I want to, I want to help. This is cool. And so she got, came on board and she absolutely blew me away with the quality of her writing. It's like, this is what a real writer can do. So she wrote some stories for the game. Um, and it was like, I was reading Tolkien or George RR R. Martin. Her prose was just delicious and beautiful. And just the stories were so much better. Uh, it was just, it was amazing. Um, because she's she's a writer. I mean, she writes more like modern stuff, so she can write, you know. But then it's I, I guess the part that surprised me was how easy what it was for her to put on the fantasy mantle and just cloak herself in that in that thing, but yet keep all the things from writing that actually makes writing good, which is interesting characters and the good the good people are never all good and the bad characters are never all evil and you know there's there's reasons and they have motivations and so I guess we have an atypical situation in that regard, but the game was released before she was there and we were, we were muddling along without a writer, you know? Um, so you can do it without a professional writer for sure. There's, you can do it. It's just better if you've got a, a good writer, especially a writer that's integrated into the team. You could hire a subcontractor to sort of write your backstory for you, but you still sort of, the, the problem there that you're going to have is that they're not immersed and embedded in the game world in the way you are, and they might sort of miss the mark a little bit. Now, maybe they, they hit a different mark than what you were looking for, and it's better, and you can, you can adopt that to your game. But realize that if they do miss the mark, you might end up not using their, their work. Um, if you were to work with an outside writer, you could give them parameters and stuff on what you wanted to do, but basically you want to make sure that that stuff fits into your game world um, pretty well. So, yeah, there's a quick question. Are you more of a narrative or mechanics designer? Mechanics. Mechanics. Yeah. I mean, I, that's just, I've done a lot of games and that's, that's where my focus is because if you don't have that right, there's not repeatable gameplay. You know, I mean, you could have a game where it's all narrative, but then it's a linear it's a linear experience and it ends. And so maybe you get 40 or 60 hours of gameplay and then it's done. And those games are okay. Like say on steam, you could do a game like that. There's all sort of those story-based games. I can't remember the names of a lot of them, but you just experience them and then they're done. They're, they're almost linear. You have some choices along the way, you know, and that's, then that's a model and you can do that and that's fine. But for an MMO, no, you're dead. 60 hours, they're gone. You, you haven't even captured any of the value at that point you need hundreds, thousands of hours of gameplay. And that has to be built on game loops that are solid. So we are, we're over our hour right now. We don't have a whole lot of time left. If you've got any final questions for Damon, then pop them in chat, pop them in the Discord and we'll get them answered. So here's my question going back to, you know, running the development studio, especially with, with friends. And even if they y'all weren't, friends initially but you've been together now for you know, 10 plus years when you've got that close of a a team and a community how do you go about solving conflict without you know just royally pissing everybody off and what do you all do internally to come to decisions on different things um i i can't say there's a simple formula for that a lot of it just has to do with the personalities of the people involved you know, you're, you're going to have different dynamics. Some Sometimes you're just going to have a team where somebody just tends to have a more dominant personality, you know. 
but it, you need to still try to have everyone committed to the idea of collaboration and, and constructive criticism. You, you certainly don't want it where you have, say, a tyrant or whatever that always gets his or her way just by being angry and emotional or overbearing or whatever. Um, so you, you really want people that are committed to to being to, to both giving and taking constructive criticism. And usually you want to criticize the ideas, not the person, obviously. And, you know, I've learned a lot about this. We had an artist at Mount Otter for a long time. And he went to art school and it was an art school that was very practical art school. And they were trained to do critiques of each other all the time. So he was able to just take and give critiques and it was never personal, you know, and you're just trying to come up with better ideas because in the, in the long run, you all succeed if the game is better. And so that's not about who wins the argument. It's about trying to come up with a process so that, so that, you end up with the best possible game and being committed to that because who cares if you always get your way, if you all fail, you know, <laughs> what, what, what good does that do? You know? So I just think people being committed to the, the best outcome is what's going to help kind of hold the team in place. But like I said, still, you're going to have different dynamics. There's, you know, every, everyone's different and personalities are different. And so there's not a one size fits all, but I would say is one guiding principle. That's something I would sort of, really adopt uh, uh, for all the team members. Okay. Yeah, no, the, uh, when I went to animation mentor, that was one of the things that was very, uh, in, in the class, we were, we had to give critiques and take critiques. Like we had to take a critique from everybody in the class on every single, you know, every week. And that was super important because it did kind of teach me, you know, not to fall in love with an idea, which is super hard. And I've worked on a game. I worked on a game and, and they told me this is the most important shot in the whole game. So I worked on it for a month and then um, I fell in love with the shot and then it got scrapped and my feelings were hurt. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, I wasn't happy with it. You know, yeah. I wasn't, but it is. But I think if I hadn't been for that, you know, two years of getting critiqued all the time that it would have probably, I probably would have lost it back then, you know. Yeah, All right, you can, I, go ahead. You can never exactly avoid that kind of thing because, I mean, you, you do sort of want to fall in love with your game anyway. Right. So you're always going to end up with some personal attachment. So it's kind of hard. You just have to try to, you know, put that aside when it's necessary. Yeah, you can't fall in love with what you're working on because it may get scrapped. All right, here's a question right here from Corinne. What kinds of mechanics do you prefer for supporting loops? Do you brainstorm mechanics with your programmers? Um, yeah, sort of more informally. Uh, it's just more like you're just talking about the game. And I've done that more with in the past when the game was more of in the design phase. But um, see, so the question was, what was the original question? It was, there's the first part. What kinds of mechanics do you prefer? So I've spent a lot of time thinking about game loops and what they are because it's after a while you realize it's what everything's based on. And uh, what's funny is that word game mechanic didn't even exist early on in the industry. It came about and I'm, I've always wondered who came up with the term. I really want to know who came up with this phrase game mechanic. Who was the first person that 
anyway, that's a separate thing. But um, one thing is to think about what is a game mechanic. And I think it's, you kind of go to cognitive psychology and stuff. You start with, you've got a stimulus on the screen, which can be some sort of challenges posed to the player through, through graphics and sound. Then you've got player action. And then you've got uh, reward. So reward doesn't necessarily need to be gold. It could just be there's a positive outcome. You know, like you damage the monster for a bunch of damage or you get over the chasm or whatever. So stimulus action reward. So I think a lot about that, that loop right there is the core. And a lot of times if something's not fun, it's because one of those three things is missing. It can be that the stimulus isn't there. Quite often the flaw is the reward or the response to your action isn't fast enough. If it's too slow, the brain doesn't process it and you don't have that fun. A lot of times that's the error that they make. Just even on something as simple as you press a button and it lights up, right? Oh, I the juice. What's that? Game game juice. Yeah, game juice. If, if there's a button there, that's the stimulus. The action is the user presses it and then it lights up. That alone is sort of a fun process. I mean, that's what Facebook's built on, making those notifications go away. But then there's a fourth one, which they never talk about, which I think is really important. You have to think about the stimulus. Then there's one, which is player thought. And so if you have a really simple mechanic, like a button lights up and you click it, this goes back to the whole thing of like a chicken. Like there's that experiment with a chicken. There's a chicken in a box and a light lights up and they, they peck the button and food comes out and then they eat it, right? That's a really simple game loop, right? But that's sort of a mindless game loop. We're humans, we have brains, we're a little smarter than chickens. Well, a little smarter because that loop alone actually will work with humans as well, like slot machines and stuff. It's very simple. But um, a more interesting game is where there's thought involved. So you take a game like chess, right? The stimulus is the other person makes the move, you look at the board, and now there's this whole thing that takes place inside your brain where you're thinking. And so that's where the games get a little more, that's where I think games are more interesting, where there's this invisible step, which is the player's thinking, and then they pick which action they're gonna take. So I think a lot of times about game mechanics and that loop with those four steps, it's really important. And you want those things tight and working well. And if you do, you're gonna have fun. Just, just with those four steps, you're gonna have fun. I like it. So you you ready to wrap this up, Jay? Yeah, I've got to go. School is back in, so I have to go pick up my son shortly. School is in. All right. Well, thank you, Damon, so much for hanging thank out with you. us. We really, really appreciate it. What I would like to tell you guys, if you're not in the Discord, discord.gg slash Indie Game Business. Honestly, if you just go on to your browser and type in Indie Game Business, you're going to see podcasts, you're going to see our YouTube, you're going to see Facebook, you're going to see um, conventions, which next week there's actually going to be... No, it's not um, one of ours. Huh? It's not one of ours. I mean, it no, is one next from, week. from Meet well, to Match has one, and our newsletter had a nice little discount in it last week for them. Um, that's what I'm talking about right there. And yeah. then Friday, next Friday, there will not be a show, if I'm correct. Right, Jay? Yes. Okay. I'm, I'm doing good to figure out what we're doing this Friday. Yeah. Don't and then about next Friday. Yeah, we will definitely just... be back. We will definitely be back the week after next. Maybe, if you're yeah. lucky. But anyways, yeah, check out our podcast, anchor.fm. Uh, check Indie Game Business. 
Um, anything else you'd like to add, good sir? Anything that you would like to say really quick, Damon? Oh, Villagers yeah. and Heroes. Check that out as well. Yeah, yeah check out Villagers and Heroes. Villagers and Heroes. You can get it on mobile. I've got it on my mobile. Um, and you can get it on Steam. You can download it. You can download the launcher from the website. Um, just the Steam and the launcher accounts are not transferable. Is that right? Uh, that's actually going to be fixed very soon. Okay. Like in, a, nice. in like a month. Yeah. So you'll be able to play Steam on mobile too. And, and Damon is on our server as well. Hopefully he will stick around for a little bit. And if y'all got any other questions as well, pop them up. We'll get them answered. Uh, but, but yeah, with that, if you missed the last two days and all of the wonderful stuff we showcased with the IGDA Foundation, um, there are two very long streams that have not been divided up yet that go through lots of excellent panels and showcases on some of these games from developers from Massachusetts to Nigeria to Australia who put together something really unique with their grant for the web uh, development fund that they got. Uh, so check that out too. You'll find it yeah. on our our Twitch. Both days are on our Twitch page. The diverse game developers. Is on, yeah. Is on, uh... Hi, that's Sarah. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness! She didn't, she didn't realize she was suddenly live. You are live. There there is there. The, there's Look. the lore master slash community manager. Is that, is that Hi. Hey, how's it going? Jesus, it's good. good forever. Yeah, you've missed time. She's Sarah, doing better than Dan's wife, who walked through one day with a towel on. Oh, yeah, that was great. So, we're like, yes, we're going to get I need to tell her all the nice things I said about her when she wasn't in the room. Yeah. She said a bunch of nice stuff. About, he said a bunch of nice stuff. Yeah, my wife totally walked right behind us just wearing a towel. And we're like, yes, we're going to get banned from Twitch and get a bunch of views. Just and a towel on her happened. head or what? That would have been awesome, but no. <laughs> That was awesome. Yeah, no, I really just thought he was on a voice call. Oh, no, we are live. We're live on Twitch. We're live on Discord. We're live on YouTube. We're live on LinkedIn. No, they are. They are live. For reals. I'm going to the store now. Bye, guys. Bye. All righty, everybody. Thank you so much, Damon. Thank you All for right. coming on and thank you for, you know, being that part of someone who inspired me to do this for, you know, years and years and years. I, I do appreciate it. And that, that's a very fond memory I still have these days. Thank you. I'm glad. That's awesome. All right, everybody. We'll be back in two weeks. Peace. Bye. Thanks for listening to Indie Game Business. You can learn more about the show and our online business networking events at indiegame.business.